0: Welcome to this Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host Linda Cherry and today I'm joined with my co-host Sam Caster, the author of Zion Rising. We have quite a bit to discuss with you today. Our our books include 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, so we have quite a bit to chew on here especially as we talk about Two amazing men, King David and his son, King Solomon. Welcome, Sam.
1: Wow, thanks for having me. And I I love that we get to talk about these men. And as we were talking about earlier, these men are temple builders. It's a a beautiful time in the history of, of Israel. And yeah. I'm excited to talk about it with you as well.
0: Oh, great. For those, uh, who are with us today, uh, Sam and I've been talking quite a bit already about David and Solomon, who we both really admire and also feel a great sadness. Uh, Sam texted me this morning. He said, I feel sad for David and Solomon and I do too. And, and so some of the things that, um, we'd like to focus on today as we talk about all the various um, qualities and aspects of their lives. So we'd like to really focus on the fact that both of them were what uh, were fulfilling the promise that the Lord had made through his covenant of becoming a king and a priest. So both David and Solomon are kings and also hold the Melchizedek priesthood. And how do we know that that they held the Melchizedek priesthood? We will get into that as we go along. Um, the sad part about this is that although both of them start off really strong and just love the Lord with all of their hearts um, and have the temple and building of the temple as their main motivation in life, uh, both of them are, are human and full of frailty, and both of them end up falling. And lots of times we tend to focus most of our attention on their fall, um, which we will discuss today, but really wanted to focus on this thing that was dear to their heart. And that was building the temple. I wanted to share this one, uh, this one phrase from uh, Psalm 27 that David wrote. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Mm -hmm. I just think this is so powerful when you really think about the fact that David never did get to enter into the temple of the Lord um, but this was literally any, the whole thing he wanted in his life was to build a house for the Lord and to also himself be able to dwell in the temple with the Lord. And he knew Samuel, Samuel the prophetess who anointed David. Of course, Samuel was raised in the temple. And I wonder how much Samuel's teachings to David might have influenced these feelings about the temple and about the Lord. Any thoughts? I
1: I love that idea. And I think it's also helpful to look at the, the macro element here. But, you know, if you go all the way back to the, the history of the world, like this, this grand vision of what's happening, the earth fell and we're trying to purify and build heaven on earth. We're trying to, as, as saints, as Israelites, we're trying to re-turn uh, the earth back to its, its celestial state with God. <clears throat> and in order to do that, we have to purify ourselves in our communities. And then we have to purify areas where the Lord can come and dwell. We have to, we have to build him a house here on the earth. So every time the saints of the Lord try and build Zion, every time they try and create heaven on earth, the center of that is always the temple. It's always that mercy seat. It's always that connection with Christ where he comes and is able to teach us how to love each other and ourselves and love him so that we can pure, you know be sanctified and exalted and, and literally raised back up to be with him right. again. Right. So it's beautiful. I agree. I think that was the central focus of what they were trying to do.
0: And I think one of the main purposes of the temple is the Lord also not only wants us to know who He is and how to return to Him, but He wants us to know who we are. And so everything about the temple is exalting us, including the clothing we wear, which is the clothing that others have seen when they see into heaven. They see that is the clothing that God and His angels are wearing. And so when God invites us to change our clothing, whether that's in the ancient days with the Levite priests or today, and put on the clothing that he wears, he's trying to help us to see who we are as divine children of his and what our potential is. Yeah. So I was sharing with Sam earlier today that when I first started reading the Bible, when I was nine years old, uh, I was really just so taken with King David. And in fact, um, the third book I'm working on, which is called Judah and Joseph Reunited, the hope for Israel, I dedicated that book to King David because I think it is literally reading about King David dancing before the Lord as he took the ark into um, Jerusalem that just really hit me so hard as a young child that made me want to love the Lord the same way that David loved the Lord. I wanted to have that kind of relationship where you could just tell that David, feels the Lord is his very best friend, but he has this enthusiasm. We've talked before about each prophet has their own personality. Moses is called um, God's friend or speaks to God face-to-face like a man speaks to his friend. Abraham has the title of the friend of God, and each of them have their own way of sort of manifesting that friendship. And David's way of manifesting that friendship was true, pure enthusiasm and joy and praise where David just can't even restrain himself. He loves the Lord that much. So as a child, I just thought, you know, I wonder what that feels like. And I want to have that feeling. And so he was definitely an inspiration for me as I sought my own relationship with God. And I have to admit that there's times, Sam, I know you well enough at this point. I think you're probably the same. There's times that I'm so overcome with love for the Lord that all I can do is sing. And I I sing sometimes my prayers to him because there's something about that connection. And David is the singer who praises God through singing. Share with me some of your experiences on that.
1: I I love that. I, you know, the, the, the expressive creation, right? It's like this, this connection. And there's so many examples of communing with the Lord through this, this song or dance or art. And it's it's this it's beautiful this artistic expression or this this um, harmony of our hearts with with the divine is something that we see all throughout the, the prior patriarchs and matriarchs, um, in, in multiple different uh, times of the world and, and geographies. And not only do you have David dancing and singing and bringing such glory to God, it's like it's like who he is and he writes this whole set of uh, books. With the Psalms and 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 you know, with music and all this, but you have all these other examples of of prophets and prophetesses where this is what they do to express themselves to the Lord, right? The, the Jaredites, most people don't realize this, but when the Jaredites were crossing the the waters after the Tower of Babel and coming over to America, it actually says right in Ether six verse nine. It says, "And they did sing praises unto the Lord." Yeah, the brother Jared did sing praises unto the Lord, and and he did think and praise the Lord all the day long. And when the night came, they did not cease to praise the Lord. I mean, there's this there's this idea of when we're really in harmony, our hearts vibrate, our voices, you know, are, can't help but sing. And when Christ comes to the temple later, another example is he says, if the if these stones could could express themselves, they would sing. Right, right. So yeah. there's something about this harmony. There's something about us being uh, uh, connected to the divine that brings out that beautiful harmony and radiance and love and, and just that artistic expression.
0: I agree. And so to me, David is sort of personified in this way. When I think of him, I just think of him as this person who's so full of this enthusiastic love for God that he can't control this sense of praise and singing. But kind of going back to the beginning, as um, we're going to talk about how David became the king, there's a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning. One is that David is from the tribe of Judah. And back in the time when Father Jacob, who's Israel gave the patriarchal blessings to each of his sons, he um, prophesied that the kings of Israel would come through the line of Judah. And in fact, the Messiah would come through the line Of Judah. And so we kind of see things lining up here when David becomes the king, that we've gone through hundreds of years, centuries of Israel just wandering after they've come into the promised land with the the reign of the judges and all of the sort of confusion and apostasy that was happening then. The tribes really were not united. Last week, we talked about that for the first time, the people start to unite under King Saul. Um, but unfortunately, Saul had some degree of mental illness and, um, and also a, as a form of ego that prevented him from really setting this example for Israel of what they could be as a holy nation, which had been their directive by the Lord. And so for the very, very first time that Israel becomes a nation that is recognized by the other nations around them and and become a whole in a united front, will be under King David. And it is David who has then begun to fulfill this prophecy that the king's and the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. And I think it's important And any time I have the opportunity to, to share on our podcast, I'm going to kind of keep bringing up sort of the promises that have been made to the fathers and how those promises are fulfilled. Now, David is also a prototype or a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ. So David, his name means beloved. And um, Jesus is called the well-beloved son of our father in heaven. David is a shepherd king. And Jesus refers to himself as the shepherd. He is also the king of kings. David was born in Bethlehem. That is his city, which means house of bread. And Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would come through the loins of David. And so we'll see as we, as we continue talking today, we'll see many other similarities between David and Jesus Christ. And just as David's heart was set on the temple and worshiping the Lord, his heart was desirous to follow the Lord and to, and to bring others to Christ. Any comments?
1: No, I think it, that, that's, that's, the be- that's the beauty of these these priest kings, right? Mm-hmm. Is they, they try and typify Christ. They try and emulate him. They try and be in harmony with him, back to the element of song. Yeah. And um, you see that even with uh, this example, this influence has, has been carried over even since Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name in Hebrew, Melchizedek, means my king righteousness. He literally changed his name. Yeah, <clears throat> to to point to Christ, and so I think there's there's power in this this idea that David. And I I love that you're bringing this up. David was 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 designed to be a shepherd of all of the Israelites to bring them back to the true shepherd to point yeah. them to him.
0: Yeah, um, something that really again when we look at his characteristics, something that really stood out to me when I was studying about David is how he waited on the Lord for every aspect of his life except for one which we'll talk about in a few minutes but but even after he had been anointed as a child basically as a young boy by Samuel David went and served in the in Saul's court but never told anybody that he was going to be the next king he never tried to usurp the throne from Saul and in fact even when Saul, as Saul is moved upon by an evil spirit and Saul seeks to kill David out of jealousy uh, because David gains a great reputation after defeating Goliath. And he's also really great in battle as he as he grows and becomes a man. Saul, filled with jealousy, um, hunts David and decides he's going to kill David. And even when Saul is in David's hands, so to speak, uh, one time he's asleep in a cave and David's in the same cave. David says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And he waits for the Lord to fulfill the prophecy that he'll become the king. He doesn't ever try to take that on himself. Mm. And then even when it came to battles, he would ask the Lord, shall I go up now or shall I wait? Um, he was constantly going to, um, Samuel to ask, for direction and also then to the high priest later on to ask for direction. This is something that really impresses me about David. And I feel it's something I can learn from because a lot of times we feel like the Lord has directed us that something's going to happen in our life or we're going to have a certain mission or a certain calling. And a lot of times we try to make that happen and we try to determine the timing. Um, but David shows us this wonderful example of waiting for God.
1: This is, this is so hard. <laughs> this is such a hard uh, uh, characteristic for, I think, lot, at least for me to channel, because I, I love being, I like, I describe myself as a mountain mover. I'm aggressive. I, I go out and try and build bridges and make things happen. And my role as an executive in a technology company for 10 years, I was about making things happen, catalyzing things, you know, pushing it to a completion and, and, and doing it quickly and efficiently and effectively. And I, it, right, right. Even right now in my own personal life, um, I'm in this period of pause where it's like, "Hey, what am I waiting for? What, what what's the next step?" And an understanding that the the path is only going to work if it's with the Lord. The the mountain you're trying to charge up is only going to be worthwhile if it's the mountain the Lord designates. That's a. I think that's a really hard thing. <clears throat> Not only I know it's for, hard for me. I think it's a really hard thing for a lot of us in today's uh, culture where we expect things. Quickly. You know, we're, we're, we're in the information age. We're in, we're in the, um, the age where you can click a button and get access to, you know, a- endless data or entertainment or whatever it is, your feelings of accomplishment or, or learning and to be able to be, to be truly meek and bridle that power to or that desire to do something as if you're, you're a horse waiting for the command from your, from your master. That that's a very difficult <laughs> talent and gifts to, to, uh, to make sure that we have consistently in our lives. I think
0: that's right. And just think, you know, David saw Saul making some pretty big mistakes went had kind of lost it and had lost the spirit of the Lord. Uh, Saul makes a lot of mistakes, but David still never steps in and, and says, Hey, I'm supposed to be the King and I'm taking no. over. No. And so in fact, even after Saul dies, uh, David really grieves over the death of Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, who is David's very best friend. friend. Yeah. They they have such a closeness and, and Jonathan had such a love for David. There's a certain point when um, Jonathan takes off his clothing and puts it on David signifying, that Jonathan recognized the spirit of the Lord saying that David should be the next king. Um, and so they have a very, very close friendship. And when Saul and Jonathan are killed, David just is grief stricken over it. And even then he does not step into the void and say, oh, the Lord called me to be the king. Um, he he still waits. And um, one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth is put on the throne in general in Israel, but the tribe of Judah at that point comes to David and says, Hey, we really want you to be our king. And so again, David asked the Lord, should I accept this calling under my tribe of Judah to be the king? And, and should I go into Judah? Should I live in within Judah's boundary? Should I live in Jerusalem? Should I go to Jerusalem? I mean, he just step by step asked the Lord these questions, and he won't have any fighting between his own people in Judah and the other tribes who are following after Saul's son Ishbosheth, he just won't, he just won't allow for it. So that he has a peaceful reign in Hebron, uh, amongst the people of Judah for, this is interesting, seven years, yeah. seven years. Mm-hmm. And then after Ishbosheth dies, Saul's son, then all of Israel comes to David and says, we are, bo- we are of thy bone and of thy flesh which is kind of what you say when you're getting married, right? That's the kind yeah. of a marriage covenant. Absolutely. And they ask him in the most peaceful way, no battles fought, no, no claiming on David's part. And they just ask him and beg him if he, if he will be their leader. And so for the first time, all of Israel is united. The tribes have been warring up to this point uh, between one another. And so for the first time, the tribes are united and here comes another type of Christ David reigns over united Israel for how many years? 33 years, 33 years, the same number as the Savior's ministry. So um,
1: the, is number, it- the number of symbols are beautiful, And I, I love that. I think you, you and I had, you had highlighted earlier that they come to him because they they, they comment and, and are impressed with his, in his enthusiasm with David's zeal for the Lord. <clears throat> and even that word itself in, in Latin enthusiasm, which is the trans, you know, not the original Hebrew, but. It, it, I think, contains the, the, the idea that they were trying to capture, the enthusiasm being having God within and theoism, right? The characteristic of having God within you. They know that the Lord is with David. They know that David is who the Lord has picked to help them become a better people. And so they rally around him and, and, and marry him in many respects, like yeah. you're saying.
0: It reminds me, actually, of the triumphal entry of the Savior, um, who they all um, acknowledged then and called the son of David because we will read about the Lord promises the David that because David's heart is so set on the Lord that it will be through David's loins that the Messiah will come. But, but the sense of how Israel united themselves to david reminds me of the triumphal entry of the savior when all of the people and they were there for feast day they were there for passover which means the israelites who lived outside of jerusalem were also there so we can say really all israel had come together and said you are our king lead us and so again we have this foreshadowing and it's really quite beautiful and this sense of the unity Mm -hmm. go ahead
1: no, it it is beautiful, and I think, it, the, the, and I, I love that you smile at numbers—the seven years and the thirty-three years—and we've talked, you and I have talked before about how seven is a symbol of Zion, a symbol of perfection, uh, or the, the number for it, and uh, three is is the number of heaven. And this, the Lord is is trying to show all of the Israelites that there's a pattern here, that there's an opportunity here for them to continue to progress and come closer to Him through David and. It's such a powerful moment. I love that and it, the contrast between them accepting David and them not really accepting the Savior later, it, it's rending. It's just it's just so devastating that mm-hmm. and, and yet the Lord is there and he applies ample grace and loves us despite it. I mean the, mm-hmm. it just makes I think that looking at David <clears throat> is in many respects an opportunity to, to better understand the Savior and what he's trying to do for us.
0: I think I think so too thank you for sharing that I do want to just point out that in terms of the people um, turning against Christ after the death I think we can see that that is primarily the priests and sure. and and by the way the um, priests Annas and Caiaphas were not even direct descendants of Aaron at this time the whole uh, law about that being, the, uh, the Lord's will had been corrupted. The high priests were appointed by Herod and the Roman governor. There's only supposed to be one high priest till death. And we have Annas and Caiaphas sharing that role. And in general, I think that we especially can see in, in the book of Acts, Acts yeah. 2, that most of Israel did at that time um, come to recognize Jesus as their savior. But um I want to talk about that. So what is David's first act after he becomes the United King of Israel? But his verse, very first thing is he wants to bring the ark um, into the city of David or Jerusalem. And so, um, this is really moving because it had been 70 years that no one had touched the ark or had anything to do with that. They'd, they'd had that experience with, um, the Philistines sending the ark back, the people looking in the ark and dying, and that they'd had this superstition about the ark. But David, who really loved the Lord, recognized the importance of the ark as a testimony. Um, Is it, that's another one of its words? It's the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony mm-hmm. of bringing that before them as they're establishing Israel as a covenant nation. And I I really want to focus on that for a, a few minutes. That. David recognizes that the only way for Israel to, to be successful is to be a covenant nation under God. And so from the very beginning, he's not telling the people, look to me as your leader. From the very beginning, he is celebrating God as our, as the leader of Israel. And so he establishes, he establishes the city of Zion as the city of David. In a very important city, tell us a little bit why this is so important, Sam. I know it's precious to you.
1: Well, no, yeah, it's, it's wonderful because he's he's trying to emulate the the patriarchs and matriarchs of old, right? He's trying to say, hey, let's bring, let's build a place where the Lord can come visit. Let's build an environment where we're loving each other and we're we're following the laws of the Lord to to a, the level that He can come join us and be present with us. And He does want to bring the the Ark into his into a city. But it's interesting because you can tell David, <clears throat> David's willing to recognize that he doesn't understand everything. All mm-hmm. he knows is that right. he wants to serve the Lord and wants to be right. close to him. And so he he has the ark start to move. And then he has this, we all, we've we all heard this crazy exp- uh, story of Uriah then touches the ark. Uzzah. Uzzah. Uh, I'm sorry, Uzzah. Sorry, I get the use mixed up. Uzzah touches the ark as it's coming over because the cattle... Uh, jostled the 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 uh, cart that it's on, and as a is is killed, mm-hmm. and David's grieved by this. He's and he's also you can tell he's worried <laughs> that maybe right. he's misstepped or maybe he's right. he's proceeding too quickly, and so he has the the ark go to a neighboring town for uh, some time and waits to hear what happens.
0: <laughs> well, and what's fun about that is, is, and again, we're covering a lot of books of scripture here today. We're talking about oh. 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And each one of them seems like they're telling the same story, but they give yeah. us different sides of it, much like the four gospels do. And mm-hmm. so we read in Chronicles that David realized that it was because the Le- the Levites had not been fully cleansed and prepared and fulfilling their role as outlined. If you remember, they had certain separations and certain duties depending upon which family of the they were in in regard to the tribe of Levi. and so um, at this time, David takes it upon himself to organize the Levites, and it's really quite impressive too, again that this is one of his first duties as king king of all Israel, is that he organizes the Levites and he tells them the importance of cleansing themselves and that they are following the duties with exactness and that there are only certain ones of the Levites who are supposed to carry the ark and so forth. And so it tells us in First Chronicles that David organized 38,000 Levites, 38,000 reminding them of their jobs and their duties, and 4,000 of them were assigned to singing. Now, I want to get to the singing part in just a minute, but how important this is that David is looking at um, how we do things with exactness, specifically things that are associated with God's ark or God's temple Um, that there's an exact way to fulfilling our covenants and our role as God's emissaries. And so it starts off here as he instructs the Levites. So we would ask ourselves, well, how does he know what the Levites are supposed to do? And we read throughout those scriptures that the Lord appeared to David several times. In fact, even when we'll get to the temple, David, David says he has in writing that the Lord wrote for David, and and drew out for him what the temple was supposed to be. So we can only imagine the story behind this Levite organization is that that came from the Lord. So here again, we want to emphasize that David has both the Melchizedek priesthood and also he is a king in Israel. And again, this sense that this is the promise of the covenant that all of us, our promise that we can become kings and queens and priests and priestesses unto the Lord. And so at the very beginning of his reign and his ministry, David is exemplifying this for his people. What does it mean? I go to the Lord, I ask the Lord, do I do this or do I do that? And how can I do it with exactness? What are your thoughts?
1: Line upon line, precept upon precept. And we have an opportunity to do that in our own lives every day as well. Understanding what the Lord will have us do. To purify our homes and make our homes into temples so that we can fill the spirit here and, and, <clears throat> and gather those righteous around us that are also seeking the Lord. I, I also think it's beautiful that David, um, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that David <clears throat> has authority that's respected by these Levites. Mm-hmm. These Levites who have been designated by birthright to be in uh, in charge of the temple are looking to right. him and uh, following his command. And one of the things, in addition to those 38,000 Levites that you, that you highlighted, Linda, there's, there were also 4,000 who were assigned to sing songs of praise, as you've highlighted in 1 Corinthians. And and this idea that these Levites would sing and that they would, that's how they would purify themselves or that's how they would draw nearer to the Lord There are uh, several scholars who believe, and we've talked about this before, that um, this tradition of singing to purify, uh, singing to approximate ourselves or come closer to the Lord, is something that is uh, replicated with with the book of Hebrews by later, after Christ's uh, ministry, the Hebrews would sing certain portions of the book of Hebrews, and the early saints would to come closer to the Lord and purify themselves so they could enter into His presence, and we also sing. As, as Latter-day Saints, and, and many, many, many other churches do, that this idea of of communal harmony or of, of, of us connecting our voices together to sing praises to the Lord is beautiful. Now, <clears throat> that's cool academically, but from an application standpoint, if you've ever been in a choir or you've ever been in a, in a, in a church meeting or anything like that where you sing and the word's start to carry new meaning and new power and new authority in your, in your heart where they literally fill you with light and, and they change who you are. Maybe you, maybe you have a, and I, I have this, I have, I have a chronic back problem. Maybe you have a chronic pain that all of a sudden is abated because of the song. I, w- I think it's important to recognize that that song is something that not only is communal for us as we sing it in harmony together, and it's a beautiful symbol of how we can all be united in in, in voice and heart as, as Zion. But it's also a way for the Lord to elevate us and to, to help us come closer and connect with Him. And so these ailments or these things that are the troubles of our lives that um maybe weigh us down, Lord the Lord uses music and song and praise to him and the power of his word in that, that beautiful harmony to elevate us and to to cleanse us and to heal us and to fill us with his light. And so anytime we can, we should be singing. (laughs) Joseph Smith actually taught, the closer you get to the Holy Ghost, the more pure your ability to sing becomes. And so if we're not singing or if we're those who feel like our voices aren't harmonic enough or we don't know our notes well enough, well, let's keep trying. (laughs) Because the more we sing, the more we purify ourselves, just like David was doing with these these, uh, Levi priests.
0: I love that truth. In the Doctrine of Covenants, the Lord says the song of the faithful is a prayer unto me. Mm. And um, Alfred Edersheim tells us that this is the first time that praise music was ever used in worship in Israel, or at least it's the first recorded time Mm. is when David did this. And we know he loved music. He used music to soothe Saul. And then he wrote a number of the Psalms that were used in temple worship. And so I love your point. That as we sing these songs of praise, our hearts change and we can become cleansed. I remember President Hinckley sharing the experience as a young man. uh, I think he was a teen and, um, and singing and participating in praise to the man. And that he felt this overwhelming testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith through that experience. And I know I've had that experience as well. And during times of singing, I can feel the spirit so strongly and receive revelation. And um, it's a, it is a very powerful tool that the Lord has given to us. And I, I hope we're all using it, to your point. Um, one of the Psalms that um, David wrote at this time, now this isn't in the book of Psalms, it's in First Chronicle, but it's called a Psalm. Um, David, at this time when he is bringing the ark, in and he's singing and dancing, he said, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness for his mercy endureth forever. And I just love that, this sense of praise. And from my own personal experience, I have really felt that the Lord appreciates it when we praise him. And Jesus set that example for us as well, that he was always praising his father in heaven Um, Whenever he was praying, and I wonder how often we are incorporating that in our lives, just saying, oh, Lord, look at what you've created and how grateful I am for it and 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 recognizing and acknowledging and 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 um, just reaching out to him with this heart full of love and praise.
1: I love that. Well, and and, you know, Satan does a really good job of trying to substitute that, uh, trying to give us something that's counterfeit or something that we feel satisfies it but doesn't really elevate and if you look at um, Hollywood or you look at Broadway or all these different venues of art <clears throat> you know Hugh, Hugh Nibley actually talks about how all art comes from the temple back tying this back to the temple and, and purifying ourselves and coming close to the Lord and he he talks about how the temple was the archetype of all of all art. Enoch is referred to as the first uh, or as, as a great artisan Mm-hmm. who created and, and did beautiful things because of the temple, including uh, music and song and other things. And the the world definitely has its counterfeit. So we how many of us like to go to a Broadway show or to and I do. I mean I, for example, <laughs> the, the contrast is so obvious. The, the musical wicked is, is, has tremendous music, <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah. the title of the of the, of the show is Wicked, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and not, to, not to downgrade it, because I think it has a beautiful message and it's all about, hey, do the right thing, even if people say that you're being bad, all that kind of stuff. But the, the Broadway has a lot of counterfeit that offers us that tries to supplant or, or fill that void. Mm-hmm. All of us are children of the creators. All of us have these hearts that have the ability to harmonize and to create and to sing. We're, we're meant to become like them. We're meant to use the power of his word to vibrate and and have these frequencies of light and love and truth with each other. And so Satan knows that. And he tries to, to give us stuff that distracts us or he tries to use music, which we're called to, to deviate us i had a or, or get us off our, our forwarding paths um i have a wonderful former state president he said the day he got called he chose that he would only listen to um general conference talks and the only music he would listen to was uh, the mormon tabernacle choir because <laughs> he was like i only want that song in my head while i'm i'm engaged in this role but how many times do we get these uh, and i'm not saying you do or or anybody else that's listening, but I, I know that it's very natural for us. It's very possible for us to get songs that maybe don't bring us closer to Christ stuck in our head because we are creatures of song. Yeah. We're meant to sing. We're meant to harmonize. So.
0: Right. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, I've had the opportunity of being in Jerusalem on mm. the Sabbath as the Sabbath begins in the evening on uh, the Friday evening. Um, mm. And the the men gather at the Western wall Uh, what remains of of, um, Herod's temple, and they sing and dance, welcoming in the Sabbath. It's joyful. I picture it as being what David did. And literally, they are dancing and holding hands and singing to welcome the Sabbath. And it's a powerful experience. I've also been in a Messianic uh, Jewish synagogue where the people come together and they dance um, to begin the services. And it's it's really quite moving and beautiful. Now, Michelle or Mikal, um, Saul's daughter, who was David's wife, yeah. um, she was kind of offended by David dancing and singing, and she felt he had demeaned himself and wasn't acting very kingly. Um, it's important for us to see that in all of the accounts, it tells us that. David is wearing a robe of fine linen, and he's also wearing an aphod. What does that mean?
1: It means he has priesthood. It means he's wearing something of righteousness or a symbol of connecting him to the Lord.
0: Yeah, that's right. He's wearing the robes of a priest. Here is the king who's just united Israel. What's most important to him? It's not the pageantry of King Saul or of the kings of the other nations. it it is the most important thing to him is if he can be a priest before Mm -hmm. the Lord and again, humbling himself before the Lord. And so um, after he brings in the ark, David just kind of just aches over the fact that he really wants to build a house for the Lord. And so up to this point, the ark is in the tabernacle or a tent. And um, David says to his council members, how is it right that a palace is being built for me? And the Lord only dwells in a tent. This is not right. I want to build a house for the Lord. And it, we can say it kind of consumed his thoughts basically from the time that he was a king, that he wanted to build this house. And so the Lord appears to him and the Lord basically thanks him that he, that David wants to build a house. And, but the Lord says to him, this is really interesting. He says, um, you're wanting to build a house for me. But David, because of your heart, I'm going to build a house for you. And this is where the the Lord promises him. This is to David and thine house, David, and thy kingdom, David, shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so what the Lord is promising David here is that through David's posterity, We're going to have the kings, but most important, we're going to have the king of kings. We're going to have the Messiah. This is powerful. I mean, this is so the opposite of what David expected. In fact, David's response is, who am I, Lord? Who am I? I mean, just imagine what this tells us about how the Lord rewards us according to what's in our heart. Share your thoughts.
1: He does. He wants to give us everything. And this, this exchange here. Is as book ended later with um when David uh ends up having this conversation with Nathan about when David ends up falling. Uh, the Lord is basically trying to help us understand that He'll give us everything that He has as quickly as we're willing to receive it, and that the best way for us to receive that is, is to emulate David is to be humble, to be grateful, to point everything back to the Lord, and to stay in that place. If we can stay in that place of receptiveness where we're humble and grateful and trusting that everything is a gift, the Lord will give us everything. If we try and take or if we try and force or or destroy to get what we want, then we close our hearts off to the ability to receive from the Lord. And so David is a, is a beautiful example. It, and it's it, like we were talking about. It's sad. It's very, very sad. But David has this tremendous uh, instruction for us in how do we stay in a place where we can receive all that the Father hath? How do we stay in a place where we where we can receive what the Lord, and I think what we really want. Because I really believe when the agency is such a fundamental piece of who we are, we fought a war over it before coming down. It's still, still a war we're fighting down here today. I feel like we, we've in many ways framed our lives with the Lord before we came down to earth. And when we violate that, we're violating not only the Lord's desire for us, but our, our true desire for ourselves. Right. That's what's so destructive about right. it.
0: So we're going to go there in a moment. I'm going to let you take us there. But before we do, before we talk about David's um, family completely falling apart, um, I want to share something that Paul wrote um, about, um, forgive me, it's not Paul, it's Luke in the book of Acts, about David at this point and this promise made to David. Um, This is in Acts 13, verse 20 through 23. And when he had removed Saul... He raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom else he gave testimony, and said, "I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfil all my will of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a saviour Jesus and so I want to tell about a few more uh, a few more similarities between." Uh, the Savior and David. And then you're going to take us into some of the sad story about David. So again, both of them, the name means beloved. They're both born in Bethlehem. And if you remember, um, poor Mary had to go through quite a bit to make sure that this prophecy was fulfilled, that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, and he's called the son of David. They're both the Shepherd kings of Israel. They both unite Israel. They both establish Zion, or in David's case, Jerusalem, as the spiritual and political center of Israel. They both fill the promised land boundaries for the first time since the covenant made to Abraham. So Um, David did that in the literal land of Israel. So the first time their boundaries are filled as promised, but Christ will do this in the millennium when all of the promised land is filled with those who have been in covenant with Christ. They're both mighty warriors. Now we don't typically think of Christ as that, but we're told certainly with the second coming in. And as John describes him in the book of revelation, the savior is also a mighty warrior Yet, despite being a mighty warrior, both have sensitive hearts. They're both loyal, devoted friends. They're both forgiving. They're both fair. David shares in his inheritance. It's very interesting to note the difference between the way David lives as king and his son Solomon. Again, David is more about being humble, and he'd rather be dressed in the robes of the Levitical priesthood than be in the robes of the king, Um, and that our Savior is also fair. He makes us joint heirs with him because he's good, not because we earned it. They look after those who cannot look after themselves. David provided for Jonathan's son for the rest of his life. He was a cripple and he ate at David's table till he died. Um, Both David and the Savior reward the faithful. Uh, David was known for being so fair and good to others. And as I said, even when Saul tried to kill him, David did not raise his hand against him. They never took a step without asking God if that's what they should do. They saw themselves as servants, both Jesus and David saw themselves as servant and gave constant praise and glory unto God. So that's David at his high point. And now David unfortunately falls. Go ahead and talk to us about that.
1: Well, I I know a lot of us know this story. Um, The, just the idea that David ends up, it's interesting. The scriptures know that at at the time when Kings go out to battle, because David is, he's a warrior King. He's a warrior prophet. He's had experiences with the Lord. And there's a time where it seems like there's a lot more to the story that we don't understand. And it seems like there's something that happens where David chooses not to, not to continue acting the way he's been acting. And instead stays back in Jerusalem when the rest of the army goes out. Now, the, the great other examples of these prophets um, who are warrior prophets like Alma or Melchizedek or Enoch or Abraham, I mean, all of them fought battles. Mm-hmm, all of right. them wielded the sword in defense of truth and justice and, and the liberty of their people. So for Enoch or for, excuse me, for um, for David to abstain or, or, you know, sit back is interesting it, it's a, it's a curious point. Or, you know, it was, he doing his duty at that time. It sounds like he wasn't, maybe he was distracted or something or dealing with some, some personal inequity or demon or something. So he ends up staying and he ends up seeing, he gets up in the middle of the night or after the sun is set, he's walking on the roof. The King's roof is above everyone else's roof. Um, and which is interesting, by the way, I don't know if many people know this, but um, this idea of architecture being, emblematic of authority. Uh, That's something that's even uh, consistent with how the Washington, DC capital is laid out right now. You can't build anything above the Capitol building. It's very similar to this ancient Israel tradition. So David's up on the top of the roof. He can see it down below. He sees Bathsheba bathing. She's very beautiful. And the, the sad story unfolds where David chooses to lust after her, has her come sleep with him, he gets her um, pregnant. She says, "Hey, I'm pregnant," and he um, asks who she's connected, you know, connected to, and realizes that um, Uriah is out fighting the battle that maybe David should be in. And David then starts to cover his sins, and he and he. First, try gets Uriah to come back and tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so it can look like he's the one that got her pregnant. And then he gets Uriah drunk and tries to have Uriah go back. And every time Uriah is a true and faithful servant, he says, Why would I why would I sleep in my own bed with my own wife if the other soldiers that I'm leading and I'm with are intense? And so he's a he's an incredible man. And it sounds like um, the Lord has been watching him for a while as well because After David instructs Uriah to be placed in the heat of the battle and then have the army back away so that Uriah is killed, uh, Nathan, the prophet, ends up coming to David and saying, I need to tell you a story. And then he relates this parable of this man who had been given many, many sheep. And then this poor man who had only been given one sheep and this one sheep, to this one poor man was... Uh, as if it was a child, as if it was his daughter, and, you know, and took care of it and kept it in his bosom and all these beautiful symbols of how much this man cherished this one little sheep and how the, the rich man with many sheep ends up taking away this little lamb. And David becomes angry and says, well, he should be punished and you know, four, four times the amount should be given back to this man who was taken from him. And Nathan says, well, David, this is you. Now, it's interesting because David immediately tries to repent. And I, I have a great Jay Golden Kimball quote that I mention in seminary sometimes just for shock value, where he, Jay Golden Kimball, and I'll send the site to you. It's wonderful. He was once in an interview. and He was, get to heaven or hell. And he said, I'll never go to hell because I repent too damn fast. <laughs> um, so, and so there's something about David still where he recognizes he made it. It's powerful and it's divine and it's important for all of us to emulate. He recognizes he made a mistake and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to repent as quickly as I can. And he fasts and he prays and he tries to find some way to reconnect with the Lord. And he weeps and he, he mourns and he feels the pain of his sin because he's now committed murder and he's also committed adultery. Um, But it's interesting, Linda, and we we talked about this, the Lord will take these terrible things and he'll still do beautiful things. And so when, when David uh, finally hears from his servants that the child That Bathsheba um, has delivered because the Lord tells him, hey, you're going to lose your son. This child ends up dying um, while he's waiting to see if the child will recover. David is mourning and lamenting and weeping. And then as soon as he hears that the child is dead, he cleanses himself, anoints himself, puts on new clothing. And his servants are shocked. They're like, what? Why aren't you mourning? You you were mourning while the child was sick, but now that the child is dead, you're not mourning anymore. And it's clear to David; he, you can tell he he knows how the Lord operates. That there's no way for him to to reverse the judgment. There's no way for him to uh, take away the consequence. This is the consequence. He did something he wasn't supposed to do, and now he's had this this severe and sorrowful consequence. And he just he decides to move on and do the best that he can. And he still applies himself to this idea of the temple. He still wants to serve the Lord, and there there are be- there's beautiful music about this. I mean, the song um, Hallelujah talks about the fall of David, um, which a lot of people have made renditions of. I think the most important thing here is that we do have, we are all broken. We all have. Mo- I don't. I don't want to ever be in a position where I feel like I'm better than David, or that I can judge David, or or say I know what happens to him because I, I don't know. But I do know that I have had those moments in my own life where I have been broken, where I've, I've, made, I've done something that I regret. I've done something that I've sorrowed over. And if we can be like David and continue to seek after the Lord, continue to try and commune with him, to, to make our, our temple to the Lord, I, I, I don't know anything more beautiful than that constant yearning, even when we know that we've failed. I think there's something divine about that
0: as well. I think so too. And, um, you know, it's important that David did not try to hide his sin.
1: No.
0: Um, he repented in front of all of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then I also want to just for a minute, talk about that from Bathsheba's viewpoint, yeah. which we have very little to know about her, but, um, you know, the the term used in the scripture was that David took her, right. He saw her bathing and he took her, um, and imagine her feelings too of this, since that it tells us in the scriptures that she mourned for Uriah's death. Um, In many ways, it feels as if she was a tool um, that, you know, you don't say no to a king, then she loses the child. Mm -hmm. Um, But then uh, in terms of what you were talking about, in terms of the grace and the redemption, Bathsheba is raised where she is clearly the favorite wife. Um, Later, she is counseling David in in some of the the actions that he should take when some of his sons are rebelling against him. And she's seen um, with the prophet at the time as being a counselor, a trusted counselor to David. And then she gives birth to Solomon and the Lord uh, calls and tells David that Solomon is the one who will follow him. And Solomon is the one to whom this prophecy that the Messiah will come through, Um, Solomon, and this is Bathsheba's child, even though Bathsheba's not first wife, this is Bathsheba's child. And so, also again, back in Matthew, where we have the account of the five women in Christ's birth, each of them supposedly with a somewhat questionable reputation, Mm
1: -hmm. we have
0: Bathsheba, which to me is the Lord saying, I'm not holding anything against Bathsheba. And, um, Bathsheba felt a tremendous amount of pain. We can't doubt that. And the Lord has also redeemed her and brought her forward and um, restored her. So it would be wonderful to have that story. Of course, it's a very personal story for both of them. But one day we'll know more about that story. Uh, we all sort of wonder about it, the Doctrine of Covenants that tells us that David is in hell. He's having to pay the price for his Mm -hmm. sin, Mm -hmm. but, and, and why is that is because of what we've learned about what it means to have your calling and election made sure. In other words, when David received this initial promise from the Lord um, that the Lord was going to build his house forever, David's house, and, and that he, the Messiah would come through him. And the, and the fact that David saw the Lord numerous times, he had a, he had a relationship that can only be in the category of calling and election made sure. And so for those who've had that experience Um, they suffer a great consequence. We've talked before about the fact that to whom much is given much is required and that Moses striking the rock, he had, he had a very, um, public consequence to that because the Lord entrusted him so much and he knew so much.
1: Mm-hmm. David
0: also knew so much. He really knew the Lord and he really understood covenant. And so there's a strong consequence to the breaking of the covenant. But the promise is that those who have had this calling an election, those very few who've had that and then have fallen that if they will repent and we're told David is in that process still, that they will come forth again. And we're told that David will have um, David will have a kingdom and a family again. And so again, you know, I dedicated my book to King David, because I, I feel like he still he still has that heart. And we see it in the beginning of his life. And we see it at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. At the end of his life, you know, the Lord told David, you can't build the temple because you're Mm -hmm. a bloody man. You've shed too much blood and because of this murder and so forth, you're not worthy to build the temple. Nevertheless, the the Lord did show him the pattern of the temple and David spent the last years of his life collecting all that would be required for building the temple, which was quite an amazing amount of gold, for example, and, and cedars and so forth. And he had that already literally already, Um, to go for um, Solomon to take over. And um, it's just so beautiful when um, David is basically um, on his deathbed and giving his charge to Solomon. The main thing, um, the most important thing he's telling Solomon, you have to do, you have to build the temple. David says to Solomon, now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the Holy holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built to the name of the Lord. And he used this phrase that just has always touched me. He told Solomon, he says, the house for the Lord has to be magnificent. magnifical. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the temple, the building of the temple by Solomon literally was one of the wonders of the ancient world. There had never been the like before in terms of laborers received a, a status um, that had never been known before because they were so careful about who could work on the temple and how they were to work on the temple. All of the stones, for example, were were brought off site so that they didn't use any hammers or tools on the stones of the temple to to put it together. Um, Almost everything is covered with gold. I can't even imagine what a site it was. It took seven years to build it. Um, okay. Not only had David gathered so much of the of the uh, materials needed for building the temple. But David asked the people if they would make a willing offering to help build the temple. And this is an important part of temple building even today. And in fact, even though he had stored so much, the people brought together even more to add for the building of the temple, which was so important for this Zion feeling for Israel was so important for establishing Israel as a covenant, a nation with the temple at their heart. It's like, it couldn't be just David wants to do this or just Solomon wants to do this. It had to be the entire nation of one heart with this desire to build the temple for the Lord. What do you think?
1: I, I agree. It's that it's a communal ascent, right? It's this idea of uniting our hearts together. And we, we, we can't do it on our own. We have to do it with each other because the laws of the laws of heaven are around love. Like Christ says, it's all about loving each other as ourselves and loving God. We can't really love God unless we love each other. And that means we have to do it with other people. You can't just <clears throat> say, Hey, I'm going to be righteous enough and go be a hermit somewhere and enter into heaven. You You actually have to gather the souls around you and purify them together in harmony and, and like, like being in a good choir. <laughs> that choir I have idea of song. You have a beautiful image here of the, of the temple that I hope we can put up in the, in the video or attach in the bottom. But the, this idea of entering the Holy of Holies also um, references this, this ascent, right? Like, cause, because we come from one stage to another and we continue to ascend up to a higher and higher place until we're in the presence of the Lord. And the, this idea that David, you know, that David was stuck, or that he has to, like it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, that he's paying for that sin. There, there, I, I do believe there's mercy in it, and I do believe that it's better for us to focus on how Christ can redeem us from our similar failings okay. than, to, than to suggest that somehow we're better than David, which is really what I'm trying to get at with this idea that there's no reason to judge Instead, it, that, that detracts us, that, that, that this distracts us from what the real purpose is. The whole purpose here is for us to come closer to Jesus Christ and to understand him and, and enter back into his presence with each other. It's also beautiful, this, this idea that the, the temple is to be fit for the Lord. And so there's, there's not only the beautiful elements and the way it's constructed and the, the time that is taken to build it, but it's also this idea that the temple is meant to be this place, where, and the scriptures talk about this, where when people do sin, they can turn to the temple and they can seek the Lord. They can seek forgiveness. They can, they can recognize that that's where he is and that he will come from heaven above down to this temple to commune with them. And so it really becomes this sacred place of atonement, the sacred place of at of atonement with Christ an opportunity to really commune with him.
0: I love that. I love that Sam. Thanks for sharing that because it's really one of the important teachings of the temple was the idea that the closer you went to the holy polies the more holy you became. In other words, it's not yourself or your acts, but it was the presence of God and and this going from one step to another in the temple um m- created a more holy people. And what's really interesting is that, you know, all the people were so into building the temple, and yet most of them, the majority of them could not go into it. I think that's important for us to consider today, because sometimes people have funny feelings uh, when they're not permitted yet to go into the temple, and they have funny feelings about that. But we look at the Israelites here, and they were so delighted and thrilled, in their whole hearts and, you know, one of the points you were making is that the temple had to be our very best, the mm-hmm. very best we can give um, to the Lord. And then that helps us to be our very best. So um, all of the things that pertain to the temple had been given through Revelation uh, first to Moses. Um, in regard to the, when he saw the tabernacle in the temple, then to David. And by the way, Solomon had his own revelation as well from the Lord. The Lord visited Solomon and also um, reinforced all of the details of the temple. Something important to me that's interesting is that on the outside, when I said people could not go inside, the majority of the people could not go inside of the temple. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ, because he was of the tribe of Judah, could not go into the temple. And when he was teaching at the temple, he was at the temple in what's called the court of women or what, what we might call the outer courtyard. And so in that outer courtyard, what everyone could see was the altar of sacrifice which represented the very first steps of coming, coming back into the presence of the Lord or of obedience and sacrifice. But also there were two pillars right on the outside of the temple on each side of the door, one named Boaz and one named Joaquin. One of the pillars was called for the Kings and the other pillar was called for the priests. And so whenever there was a new King, um, sustained or uh, made a king, uh, uh, and the same for a priest. They would stand in front of that pillar with all of the rest of Israel looking on and watching. And in front of their respective pillar, they would be washed, anointed, clothed, and given a new name. And so this was a big, you know, there's no TV. There's no satellite television. There are, you know, this was a great pageant for people to come and watch. It was, Something that everyone would have stopped whatever they were doing to come see what was happening at the temple. This is true also of the feast days. And so many of the teachings of the plan of salvation were shown to the people in the outer courtyard um, to help them to know how how to make this journey back. In this sense, specifically of the coronation and ordination of the kings and the priests was so important that this took place outside of the temple in front of these pillars, again, to underscore to all the people, here is what the Lord intends for you to be, a king and a priest, a queen and a priestess, and everyone got to be part of that pageant and to watch that. And there'd be singing and everything that took place Mm -hmm. as part of that. And so um, just as people had gathered for that sort of ceremony, people gathered everyone together for the dedication of the temple. So after seven and a half years, here we go with our seven again, after seven and a half years of building the temple was complete. It was also unique in that um, Solomon um, obtained the help of the Phoenicians and people who were outside of Israel mm-hmm. to help who felt like this was qu- quite an honor to help to build this temple in Israel. So under Solomon, the entire view of Israel as a nation really changed for yeah. good, for good and for bad. Um, but for the first time, they received a lot of respect from other nations and largely because of all this treasure they have. That's part of the covenant blessings. So Solomon, we see him in the role of a king and a priest with the Melchizedek priesthood, because it's Solomon who dedicates the temple and offers all the sacrifices and blesses the people. Now, remember what happened to Saul when Saul offered a sacrifice, he was chastised for it Mm -hmm. because he didn't have the authority. Great point. And so we have this idea that we've been emphasizing here about everything to do with God's house, everything to do with his priesthood, as in the case of Uzzah studying the ark, is mm-hmm. to be done with exactness. And so if there was ever a time that um, things weren't doing being done exact and the Lord would have taught a lesson, it would have been here. So we can only then extrapolate the fact that even though we don't know how or when either David or Solomon received the priesthood, they clearly have the Melchizedek priesthood and our functioning in that office.
1: I, I, I agree, Yolanda. You know it's interesting because the Lord, the Lord tells us in Doctrine and Covenants, and we also know this from from Moses. Moses got the Melchizedek priesthood from Jethro, and the Lord tells um, the uh, us and and also uh, the the men, hey, you can't endure my presence without the Melchizedek priesthood. DNC eighty four is very very clear about that. David and Solomon both have these face to face interactions or experiences, and it's different. The contrast between them and Saul is, is valuable because it's different. Saul has to have an intermediary prophet. David and Solomon don't need intermediary prophets. Now, there's prophets around that help uh, them when they need some help or mm-hmm. you know, right. remind them they've made a mistake. But Solomon right. has, has those experiences, and it, it doesn't come from a dream. It comes from a face-to-face interaction. And the Lord asks him, you know, what do you want? Now, um, he, he does have dreams. Um, and it's beautiful that everybody knows about how Solomon is known as the, this, this great wise ruler that, um, asked for wisdom above all else. And because he asked for wisdom, he's given all these other, uh, blessings, long life treasures, and he's able to build the temple for the Lord. And the, the stories that are told of that clearly have a positive impact on the, on the on the perception of the kingdom of Israel. And we don't touch on it in this lesson, but obviously there's the story of the queen of, of Sheba. Most people just know that as a as a hypothetical question, right? Like, who are you, the Queen of Sheba? They don't know the story, <laughs> but she was a big deal, <laughs> and she comes and visits. So there's all these there's all this elevation, there's all this light that starts to come. And I think you and I have talked about this before, but because Solomon is in this priesthood role, he's able to um, bring the Lord cl- or bring the people closer to the Lord and and prepare a place for him. And just like what Joseph Smith did with the saints in Kirtland and in Nauvoo, there are these manifestations of divine blessing that are consistent with the priesthood. And so when when Solomon has this, this temple experience, the, the temple's filled with Shekinah or, or celestial burning or everlasting uh, light or burnings, this idea of fire. Because we know from Joseph Smith that it's not hell that burns, it's heaven that burns. And so this, this light starts to emanate on your earlier point, this is why it's really critical that we only allow people who are ready to enter the temple to enter the temple. Because you don't want to send somebody into the sun unless they're ready to withstand the light of the sun. <laughs> it's, it's protective. It's not exclusive. It's not meant to be um, pejorative or derogatory or, or make someone feel or shameful, right? Or make someone feel bad. It's meant to say, hey, you're not ready to receive the light that I want to give you until you're ready to receive the light I want to give you. And so we're going to go through this process where we're going to start with priests, but we'll start with prophets and then we'll extend it to priests and then we'll extend it to more community and then we'll send it to tribes and then we'll eventually extend it to the whole world. And so that I just, I love that Solomon points us to that opportunity and I think we can all do it. I I don't don't think there's any barrier to us receiving that light other than our own willingness to receive it.
0: In fact, this acceptance of the temple by the presence of the Shekinah or the glory of the Lord had a, had an historical impact like nothing else in terms of really helping the Israelites to understand that God was with them and that he'd accepted them. In fact, the reason why I bring it up is because Solomon's temple is sort of the apogee of all of the temples yes. um, because of this experience of the Shekinah coming uh, later. After this temple is destroyed um, by the Babylonians. And then we have the second temple called Zerubbabel's temple, uh, which later Herod beautifies and becomes the Herod's temple during Jesus's time. Uh, When that temple is dedicated, the people mourn. Uh, This is under the priest Ezra and the Mm -hmm. people mourn because there's no Shekinah. There's no ark and there's no Shekinah. And so they just feel like, oh, God, you know, God is just not happy with us. He's not accepting us. So this was really the high point in Israel's covenant nation status, this dedication of the temple. It was the most important point. And how interesting it is that for Joseph Smith, it said he's never, he never built a, uh, he never built a regular church building. He only ever built temples. He was only ever focused on building temples. And so from the very beginning of, of Israel being restored in our day as a covenant nation, and that means anyone who comes to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah becomes part of covenant Israel, that the whole focus, the entire focus is on building temples and we see that today. But um, there, then they had this one temple, which became a wonder of the world. And everybody talked about today. We have many temples, temples to dot the earth. When I first joined the church, I think there were 17 temples. And, you know, I'd heard that prophecy temples to dot the earth. And you know I, I couldn't even really comprehend what that'd be like. Uh, I was in doubt in the in the Los Angeles temple, which is a pretty wonderful temple. And it was hard for me to picture having that um, dotting the earth. And today we live in that day when we have temples throughout the earth and we are a temple centered people. And this is what both David and Solomon were trying to exemplify under the direction of the Lord, that to be a covenant nation, we need to be a temple centered nation. That means God, God is at the center of our lives. And that we seek to, to worship him, to praise him, to follow him and to learn at the temple. So one of the things I want to bring up is that, you know, we've talked about a few of the ways that the temple was teaching a few of the different principles the temple taught people. But in the, in the scriptures in uh, first Kings, it tells us that Solomon dedicated the sacrifices in the temple three times a year. Well, the reason that's important to recognize is that it was three times a year. That the people were to keep the feast and festival days. Mm. And those feast and festival days, the spring feast, the fall feast, with the one in the middle being Pentecost, each of those feast and festival days foretold about different characteristics and the mission of the Messiah Jesus Christ. It's believed that the spring festivals testified of his first coming and the fall festivals testified of his second coming. So here again, The um, temple is teaching so much about the plan of salvation. It is still today teaching us about the plan of salvation. And at the heart of the plan of salvation is the atonement of Jesus Christ. So anciently and today, by the way, I will say I've written a book that's coming out in August called The Feast and Festivals of the Messiah that will tell us more about Solomon's temple. Um, But I do want to talk about the fact that Solomon also fell, and then I want to come back to something very special about Solomon's prayer, that uh, prayer of dedication that was fulfilled in our day. So let's talk about Solomon's warning from the Lord, and then what happened to Solomon. I'm making you take all the sad stories today.
1: (laughs) Well, I think the best way to to capture it is, and I think you can't read these chapters without looking at what Jacob tells us about David and Solomon in the Book of Mormon, um, because he's at a time in the, in the Nephi history here in America where the there are many peop, uh, men who start to uh, have multiple wives, and they, they want concubines, and they want to have uh, multiple relationships. Um, and uh, Jacob very clearly says, hey, this is only okay if the Lord commands it, and the Lord is only, only going to command polygamy or multiple wives if he's trying to raise up seed. So there was a time where David and Solomon both were righteous men. And just like Abraham and other prophets before, you know, Israel, Jacob who later became Israel and these other patriarchs, they end up having um, multiple wives so they can have a great posterity and the Lord can raise seed and build this community that can then love each other and then ascend back up into heaven. That's the whole point. It's all about, you know, us being this, this harmonic community that, that, um, that sings to the Lord and becomes closer to him. So Solomon, Jacob very clearly says Solomon and David sinned when they, when they took uh, unto themselves uh, wives that weren't uh, blessed by the Lord and Solomon, it's crazy. I remember hearing about this as a high school kid and it's just insane. It sounds insanity, but he ends up having, what is it? 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so a, a thousand women um, and it, it's all, it almost, it, even just the number sounds egotistical, <laughs> right? That he's trying to feed something inside him. That's not, um, divine. That's more natural man. And i I guess the biggest thing for me, Linda, on this, this stuff is that uh, this, this topic is that nothing lasts except for Christ. Nothing lasts except for our relationship with him and the things that he blesses in our lives. And, <clears throat> All of us struggle as humans with these natural tendencies and these things that we, um, these appetites or these things that we think that we want. And Satan's very good at convincing us that satisfying the appetite will bring us peace. But appetites, satisfying appetites never, ever bring peace. It's only when we are able to come closer to Christ. It's only when we're able to hear him and feel him and, and see him. And, and be restored by him. That's what that's what satisfies us. That's what brings us everlasting peace. And so in this Solomon and David story, I guess the biggest takeaway for me is that we all have those those tendencies. We all have appetites. We all have things that we're trying to understand and bridle and harness. And the Lord has this tender mercy that he extends to all of us where he says, if you make a mistake, come to me and repent. I'll help you heal. I'll help you uh, sublimate your, your tendencies. I'll help you take them to a higher level, help you become like a child. And as long as we can stay in that place of of humility and receptiveness, like we talked about with David, then he'll give us everything and he'll heal us and he'll help us identify those, those wounds or those fears in our heart that make us think that we're only great. If we have those appetites satisfied, because I think that's what it's sad, but I think that's what was happening with Solomon. He ends up connecting with all these other nations, bringing in other wives from other places that don't believe. And it says, by the end that he built a temple to the different gods that did horrible atrocities in the name of their, their Godhood. And so I just, this is so sad, (laughs) but I, I just feel like there's, there's, we have to focus on this idea that we can avoid that path for ourselves if we if we continue to come to the Lord, if if we repent so quick, we'll never, you know, like Jay Golden Kimball says, never go to hell because we repent so damn fast.
0: Well, I think something so key there takes us back to originally when Israel chose Saul and they said, we want to have a king like all the other nations. They want to look like the other nations. Now, when it appears with David, it appears that David is is sort of centralizing Israel um, as a nation and kind of working on the heart of Israel, whereas Solomon starts the same thing of, we want to have alliances with other nations. We want to be admired by other nations so that even the story of the Queen of Sheba, who's coming because she can't believe the report she's heard about him. And then she finds out, oh, it's true. In other words, Solomon has something like 20,000 horses and chariots. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, And, you know, there's these legends and stories told about when he had his young men go forth, you know, he would be in the center chariot. And then he would be surrounded by these young men in their chariots, and they even put gold dust in their long hair so that their hair would shimmer under the sun. Everything was about the pageantry of what other nations did. and he was very keen on making alliances. So all of these, well, not all, but most of his marriages were with women of other marriages, or other nations. Other nations yes. And in, other, in order to be tolerant, in, in order to be tolerant and politically correct, He allowed each of those wives to bring their gods and then to show his love or commitment to those wives. As you said, he built temples to the other gods. In fact, there's a hill in Jerusalem called the abomination, uh, Solomon's abomination. And it's because, as you said, a lot of those gods required human sacrifice and, and, um, sexual prostitution as part of their, part of their worship service. So again, Is that Solomon wants to be like everybody else. And he wants to be admired by everybody else. And over and over and over again, in the scriptures, the Lord has said, you have to marry inside the covenant. You have to marry inside the covenant. And even today, we recognize the blessings of marrying within the covenant and having a family being sealed in the temple. And that, as you said, we're all susceptible to the human frailties of the flesh, but being married Are sealed in the temple and being married in the covenant helps to give us more of a sense of our focus being still on God and what is an eternal family than being caught up with the things of the world. When you talked about your state president and the music, I was thinking about, you know, even more than music is the movies and things that we have that, that, that we start, we start to bring also into our lives and we start tolerating the same way that Solomon, Solomon tolerated. And we can say, well, I still love God. And Solomon believed he still loved God. And, but he was just being kind to to others. And he tolerated okay. these things being brought in. And I think we can also be taken off base by we see a movie and it makes it feel like, well, everybody's doing this. And so it it can't be bad because everyone is doing this kind of behavior. And, um, and so then before we know it, we're caught, we're caught up in it, or we think we're better, actually, we can still be better than what we're seeing behavior acted out. And in social media or movies or such, we can still be better than that, but still not be keeping our covenants. What are your thoughts?
1: No, you're right. I mean, the eye, the eye is the center of the soul, right? Like what we look at, what we pay attention to, what we consume, it, that's what we take into our hearts and the the lord warns us what we that which we take into our hearts becomes um so if we're setting our hearts upon the things of the world we're going to create disharmony we're we're going to create uh, war and bloodshed around us and i have it's interesting because there are times where we need to put up that that wall of enmity we need to kick out we need to cleanse the temple like like the the savior did we need to rid ourselves of the the blooded sins of this generation, like purge ourselves from it. And there, I have a very, you know, a lot of family members who who struggle with different things. I have a very large family. My grandfather had twelve kids. Uh, my mom is the second oldest, and so I, I'm like the. I have I have uh, an aunt who's a year younger than me, and then I have a, about I think we have like eighty six cousins now in the oh, family. Wow. So um, very Israel-like, but we've also, many of us um, have struggled with uh, these different uh, similar, similar sins, similar uh, appetites and, and things. And it's, it's, when you have family members like that, it's very natural to tiptoe around who's doing what. And so it makes sense that, <clears throat> that Solomon would be kind or polite, like you're saying. And there is a way for us to still love people and say, no, that's wrong there is a way for us to say, not in my house. There is, and, and it's, if, if we don't, we're condoning it. And that may sound offensive to some people, that may sound offsetting, that might may sound judgmental. And the reality is, it's not meant that way. It's just if you're not at my, if you're not going to harmonize with my choir, then don't come sing in my choir. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're not going to if you're not going to try and live and worship the Lord the way I want to, I will love you and I'll be connected with you, but I'm also going to be very careful about what I permit in my temple, and that that can be really difficult for people. Now, they, I don't think people realize as well that we have these generational impacts of the sins that we have, like David and Solomon. Uh, very, I, I think it's very similar to Alma the Elder and Alma the Younger. It's just a contrast, right? Alma the Elder was a priest of Noah, was doing bad things, had to repent in the pain of his soul. Alma the Younger, same thing, had to repent in the pain of his soul. But they they chose to continue to pursue the Lord. David and Solomon went the other way. <clears throat> but we, we all have this opportunity to choose which way we look, what 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 we bring into our hearts. And I think it's absolutely critical for us, to recognize that unless we choose, the choice will be made for us. We we have to we have to take that agency and we have to decide. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to pay attention to other stuff. I'm not going to let these other evil things in into my home. That's so beautiful.
0: Us. And we can't choose to change the consequences. That's the thing. We can choose the behavior, but we can't choose the consequence. And in fact, so the Lord tells appears to Solomon, and he says, "Because you've done this." Um, the kingdom is going to be divided. Yeah. Um, And that he said, the Lord told, and here's again, another little mercy regarding David. Okay. This is after David's death. The Lord says, because I promised David, I will retain one house, the tribe of Judah for David, but the kingdom is going to be divided now because of Solomon's behavior. And what's so sad is that literally this was, this is the only time Israel was ever united was truly under David because Solomon fell during his lifetime and the, and the divide division of the kingdom occurs after his death as promised by the Lord. But it's just so sad because it's almost like Israel never had a chance to see what it was to be a covenant covenant nation, which is so different than under Mosiah, Benjamin and Mosiah, or, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, terribly sad thing. Now we have that same opportunity to be a covenant nation today. And I do want to talk about um, a restoration because in Solomon's prayer, Solomon prayed a beautiful dedicatory prayer that is recorded in first Kings chapter eight. And as you said, over and over, he says, if the people get scattered, have them turn to the temple and hear their prayer. And if the people sin, have them turn to the temple. And again, that's a beautiful symbol for us today that, that, is still true for us today, but he also prayed a prayer about a stranger that would come from a far distant land. Mm -hmm. Um, and that would be caring about the people of Israel. And Solomon asked that that stranger's prayer would be heard. And, um, I'm just going to read it. This is what Solomon said, moreover concerning a stranger that is not of thy people, Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house, which I've built it is called by thy name. Now it's interesting. This was, uh, literally thousands of years ago. It's interesting, as I mentioned, that Joseph Smith had temples on his heart the same way that King David did. And the very first temple of our dispensation, the Kirtland Temple, uh, the dedicatory prayers in DNC 109. And in that prayer, Joseph Smith, uh, in a time of great anti-Semitism in our nation and, and in the world, Joseph Smith prayed for the return of the Jews to their land. Yes, And then he called upon one of his apostles, Orson Hyde, to go and dedicate the, the land of Israel for the return of the Jews. This is um, in uh, 1841 that Orson mm-hmm. Hyde goes. And um, at this time, all of the Jews had been scattered. They had had so many different conquests and had been scattered throughout the world. And as I said, it's a time of tremendous anti-Semitism in the world. And Orson Hyde at tremendous risk of his own life. He saw beheaded people. He was in a shipwreck. Um, but in order to fulfill the will of the Lord, Orson Hyde went and stood over, uh, looking over at the um the Temple Mount. And he said he did as the angel directed him. He prayed for the return of the Jews, and um he he took a rod. This is sort of in fulfillment of a vision that ezekiel has ezekiel envisions that in the time just preceding the millennium an angel comes and measures the temple mount for the rebuilding of the temple on Mm -hmm. temple mount and um and so uh orson hyde in his journal says that he did as he was directed with the rod now was he doing what that what would have been foretold by ezekiel of measuring the Temple Mount, we don't know. But what we do know is that he prayed quite a lengthy prayer um, that um, Israel could be rededicated and the people come back um, to their land. And um, he said that he was sent by the Lord to speak Comfortably to Jerusalem and to cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, and she is received of the Lord's hand doubly for all of her sins. And now is the time that they should come as doves to the window to return to the land of Israel. So this is 1841. Jews had been scattered for thousands of years. And when I say Jews, I want to make sure that we understand that the Jews represent one of the tribes of Israel all of Israel is to be gathered. And so we have people of, of that sort of all the tribes sort of mixed together in general. So this is in 1841. And then we have the, um, we have the World War I and World War II. And of course, in World War II, the, the Jews are uh, treated abominably in the Holocaust. And as a result of that, they have a desire to come back to Israel and make that their homeland. In 1948, Israel becomes a state. So basically a hundred years after Orson Hyde's dedication, I don't think it is a coincidence, but the fact that Solomon in a prophetic role was able to foresee one day, a stranger who's not from here is going to come and he's going to pray towards this house where this house was please hear his prayer. And today it's like we're bookends. I remember President Hinckley talking about the Nauvoo temple and the Salt Lake temple, you know, looking at each other. And I feel like I hope that today we can look back to Solomon's temple and recognize that tie that binds us to them as a people And that now we have the temples today and that we can invite all, all of Israel to come back and come back to the Lord in the temple.
1: Love that. What a beautiful, what a beautiful way, way to end this. I mean, this, this is all about the Lord redeeming his people, extending his grace to, to help gather us home, to reunite us as that community that can love each other. And the fulfillment of that prophecy with Orson Hyde is, is beautiful. And I feel, I feel the light of it. I feel the power of it. And I, I feel like we're accelerating even faster now. And I, I feel like there's an opportunity for us to join in that Zion building in our own homes and our own communities by <clears throat> learning to love each other, by recognizing that, some, that love without truth is destructive and truth without love is destructive. Like we need to blend those two things together mm-hmm. and be in a place where we uh, our focus solely on on Christ and how we want to prepare the earth for his second coming. It's up to us to do that. So we should join in that and make it happen more quickly. <laughs> There's no reason to wait. <laughs> right.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. I hope we can learn a lot from looking at these two great men. And um, especially I hope that we can come away with this desire that our heart just be filled with enthusiasm yes. and love and praise for our Lord who does so much for us. I also want to invite everyone who's listening that I'm leading a tour to the Holy Lands. I'm going to Egypt, uh, Jordan, and Israel in February of 2024. We're taking our registrations now. And to be honest with you, we are almost sold out and would love to invite anyone who's listening to come. You can find out the information on my website, Linda Cherry Books and Tours. And that's Linda with a Y, Linda Cherry Books and Tours, and would love to invite everyone to join us. And we thank everyone today who has been with us. We so appreciate this opportunity of being together. We really enjoy spending time together and sharing our thoughts with all of you and um, invite you to share and to subscribe with your friends. Thank you so much.